This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Religion. My name is Piotr Krasicki. I'm a professor of history at the University of Maryland. Uh, my guest today is Catherine Jin Lum, an associate professor of religious studies in collaboration with the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity and History by courtesy at Stanford University. Her book, Heathen, Religion and Race in American History, was published by Harvard University Press in May 2022. It is an incredible book, and I'm proud to welcome Catherine to the program today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be in conversation with you. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. It's a pleasure to do this, and I'm going to go ahead and get right into it. So uh, I always start out these conversations by asking why a given author chose the particular project, but anyone who reads even the first few pages of your book is going to get a pretty clear sense of how you presented your connection to the subject matter. I, I got to say that your prologue is probably one of the most personal pieces of writing I've read in an academic monograph. And I don't want you to reconstruct the whole thing here, but you make a point that I was wondering if you might uh, elaborate a little bit for our listeners, which is that you think back to your childhood and feel like you could be a primary source for yourself writing this book. And I wonder what it's like to feel like that and how you write when you feel like that. Yes, yes. Um, the prologue was a very personal thing for me to write. And I really went back and forth for some time about whether to include it. Um, you know, I was really, I was trained um, as, you know, kind of as a, as an old school historian in a sense, you know, not to really put myself out there. Um, but increasingly as I was working on this project, I have been influenced by scholarship in other fields where you you can't not put yourself out there. You can't not explain your positionality, your relationship to the subject. Um, and obviously my relationship to this subject is extremely personal. You know, I grew up in, um, a conservative religious denomination. I grew up believing that um, my ancestors, you know, relatives in China, um, I'm the child of Chinese immigrants. I grew up believing that they were heathens. Um, and I grew up believing that heathens were damned. And so, you know, my first book I wrote about hell because I'm, I'm, I was thinking about these issues. And then the second book I moved on to this topic of the heathen. Um, to the question of, of how it feels to to be a primary source for myself. I mean, in the prologue, I write that childhood me is you know a primary source for historian me, but adult me is also still a primary source in some ways for historian me. You know, it's not that these questions haven't stopped mattering to me from a personal level, um, and you know, I guess that 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 gives me a relationship to the sources, to the research that's. Um, that's different from, you know, just a historian who has an academic interest in the topic. You know, I, I understand in a different way, I think, where some of my subjects are coming from. Um, some of the people that I write about, you know, in the late 19th century, for instance, Chinese immigrants who are wrestling with what to do with this category of heathen, um, this label that they've been given, you know, how to understand it. Do they push back against it? Do they adopt it? Um, do they accept it for themselves in a particular way? Like these things resonate with me, I think, in a different kind of way. You know, it's very clear as 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 one reads the book that um, the complexity of the trajectory, the both the the on an, in an anthropological sense and in terms of the contingent events you get into, the sources you choose. I I I remembered your prologue, and then I realized once we got to the end of the book and COVID nineteen came back again that uh, we hadn't escaped. <laughs> our own positionality <laughs> yes. in the world. Uh, and I want to come back to the pandemic and to the last few years at the end of our conversation. But if I could just ask you maybe to say a few words by way of a teaser 
for our listeners about how you think about the historical trajectory of the heathen label. I mean, your final chapter, you refer to it, I really like this phrase, as an enduring religio-racial script. Uh, And of course, it's one word, but it strikes me that your book shows lots of different scripts, albeit coming together in a kind of tapestry. Uh, Is there a let's say, a, a direction to the story that you, that, that, that you still think about, uh, whether an arc or a kind of a thick description. I, I use the word mosaic, but we could use lots of other words. And is race the canvas on which this is all being uh, painted? Or is it some other uh, lovely metaphor that you might apply? Yeah, yeah. So the question of an arc or a trajectory, I mean, I think that um, one of the key points that I try to make in the book, and this is a kind of intervention into the subject of history itself, is the significance of continuity as well as change, right? So I try to narrate an account that is attentive to both. So if you're looking just at change, it's easy to tell a story about change through the term heathen or the label heathen. Um in my book, I reference, I think it's in one of the footnotes, um, a Google Ngram, which I actually really wanted to include an image of in the book, but my editor said it was, wasn't going to reproduce well, and it's honestly not you know, very scientific. But Google Ngram lets you search terms, and then you, know, you can search it in a particular language. You can search American English, quote unquote, American English, um, and, uh, and search it over a period of time. And if you put the term heathen in, you know, you'll see that there is a rise in use of the term by the mid-19th century, and then it really drops and precipitously declines by the early 20th century. And, you know, today, people don't really use the term anymore unless we're referring to neo-heathens, um, neo-heathenry. So on the one hand, you could say, okay, well, you know, the story of this term is that it used to be a commonly used term. It used to be a way that people viewed the world and differentiated between the us versus the them. It was a religious way of othering. And, um, and over time, you know, racial differences or um, pseudoscientific differences marked on bodies came to be more important than religion, right? And so that replaces the concept of the heathen, and that's why it declines. Um, I make the argument in the book that that's too simple, an argument. I mean, clearly there is some change over time in use of this term. But in the book, I, I argue that the ideas that underlie the term, they don't go away, right? There's you know, these ideas have been in place for centuries and to think that they would disappear with the, um, you know, with the decline of the term itself, I think is is naive. So there's other terms that have come in the place of heathen. So, you know, on the one hand, you can see this kind of declining trajectory, but on the other hand, you can see, um, I like, as you put it, a tapestry or a um, canvas or a loop or something, you know, it's a continuity. Um, and yeah, to the question of whether race is the canvas, I, I, I mean, I think that, the term heathen has always been a religio-racial term. And, you know, I realize that this gets into questions about when does race um, begin, you know, the origins of race. And there's a lot of debate around this. Um, and I'm not a medievalist and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm an American historian. So I realize that I'm wading into these, um, these questions that are a very big concern in other fields. But um, yeah, I guess I don't see the, I don't see race as something that simply emerges with a transition to modernity um, and I, I don't see race as something that is only or solely marked on bodies. So uh, this this point gets me to anthropology as a discipline. And in order to step away for a second, I'm not a medievalist either, and I completely agree with you about the the the, the permanence, if you will, the structural quality of races embedding in religion. I want to ask you about how adequate anthropology is or isn't for capturing the kinds of connections you're exploring. Because, I mean, I didn't see Jokheim's name anywhere in your book, but, uh, you know, we we both went to Stanford. I took a class with René Girard when I was an undergrad. Uh, If you sort of review the classics of anthropology, it's very difficult to try to square the foundations on which the field is built with the kind of approach you take. And I see that also in some of the anthropology textbooks that you critique, that you engage at length. Um, I'm just curious if, since we're talking about continuities over time, you feel like there's 
a critical message here because well, we've been talking as historians. We'll talk more as historians, but I hope anthropologists read your book too. Thank you. I mean, I, I am a historian. I don't want to um, make any large claims about disciplines that are not my own. Um, but yeah, I do. You know, I write about the origins of these fields and the ways that the figure of the heathen really contributed to the differentiation between these fields. Um, and I think that that's something that we have forgotten perhaps, or, you know, that's it's, it's in the back of our memory, but it's not so present as it might be. Um, and so, you know, so one of the things that I, that I note in this book and actually kind of develop more in, a, in an article that I wrote um, is that the discipline of history was really founded on this idea of progress, right? Of change over time, of um, historical people being the ones who go out and do something to the world, who make a difference in the world. And so if you look at, you know, late 19th century textbooks, um, you know, American publications, uh, world history textbooks, even world history textbooks explicitly say from the outset, this is the histo history of historical people, right? Historical people are Caucasian people. Um, other people belong to the discipline of anthropology, right? These are people who don't change over time, people that we can study and who tell us something about um, humanity, about the origins of humanity, because they're still living in that way, right? All of these stereotypes about unchanging people who should be studied in ways other than historical. And so there's really this kind of bifurcation, um, this understanding that some people belong to anthropology and some people belong to history. And, um, and I see, you know, I see resonances of that past the late 19th century. So one of the, one of the books that I cite, one of these anthropological textbooks is a book called The Heathens um, by William Howells, which was published in, I don't have the date off the top of my head, mid, mid 20th century and, you know, continued to be reprinted like late into the 20th century, I think maybe even into the 21st. Um, it was actually a grad student who brought it to my attention when I gave a talk in the department and said, you know, I had to read this book called The Heathens, <laughs> Anthropology class um, in the 2000s uh, and, and gave me a copy of the textbook. And I was, you know, wow, that's, yeah, that resonates. Well, so, so uh, this notion of uh, certain peoples who belong to anthropology, certain peoples who belong to history, I want to talk about couple of peoples, sets of peoples, I have to be more self-critical maybe with the terminology, but uh, who fit your story, but don't exactly fit your story. Quote unquote, pagan Catholics. And I love that, that, that section title uh, and uh, Jews and Islam. I'll leave apart for a second uh, because it's embedded in some of the other elements of your story. But I was reading your book as I mean, among other things, I'm a scholar of Catholicism and I'm a scholar of modern Europe. And there's a wonderful book published about a decade ago by a Berkeley professor from Enemy to Brother, uh, which basically made the case that you needed converts to rise to a certain level within the Catholic hierarchy in the mid 20th century for there to be any chance of erasing anti-Semitism or at least for creating an opening next to anti-Semitism for uh, Jews to be accepted as persons with dignity. And I was reading your introduction, I was thinking about this, and it followed me throughout the book, because Judaism in so many ways is a uh, template in the missionary activities that you're describing, and yet the Jews are the arch-other uh, in some respects, uh, not quite without, uh, not quite abandoned by history, but not quite in the realm of anthropology either. So I know your book's not about Jews and anti-Semitism, but I was reading it and I saw their story everywhere. Uh, and also considering anti-Semitism as, you know, a primary force of global racism. So Without you know leading you too much astray, I'm curious if you feel like that strain is complementary of the conversation about anti-Semitism and Jews understood as heathens, or if it's really at odds with the vision that you have for heathenism. Yeah, you know, I think there's some of both, right? So I, I really appreciate how you use the term template because I think that is very important and. One of the books that I cite in the introduction that was really formative to my thinking is Geraldine Hung's um, Invention of Race in the European Middle Ages. And um, 
in that book and in the, the articles that she wrote that led to that book, she writes about um, the English treatment of the Jews as constitutive of um, a kind of English identity, right? So the expulsion of Jews, English anti-Semitism forming this sense of what English identity is. And she argues that you know, religion can operate biopolitically. And so, you know, when I said earlier that race is not just written on the body, also religion is not just interior, right? It's also written on the body. And so we have to look at race as both, um, you know, a matter of um, ideas, you know, beliefs, kind of religious orientations, but like these, these are intertwined, right? Religion and race. And Geraldine Hung, I think, really um, explains that well in her book. Uh, and so, so yeah, I think you're right that there is this sense of anti-Semitism as a template um, for the treatment of the heathen other. But there's also an important difference, which is that um, quote unquote heathens were understood to be ignorant in a way that Jews were not, right? And so this really comes up in particular in debates about um, indigenous Americans, about Native Americans, and um, in particular in questions about um, limpieza de sangre, so the, you know, the notion of purity of blood. So the idea that Jews were guilty because they, they should have known, right? There was this idea that Jews were guilty because they should have known the truth, um, whereas Native Americans you know, they were not, they did not have the stain of, the same stain of impurity of blood because they were not part of that quote unquote old world um, setting. You know, they didn't know, right? There's a certain level of ignorance that is supposed to be ascribed to heathen peoples that is not ascribed to Jews, right? There's a lot of debates about this and a lot of questions about, you know, the the extent to which um, people in the so-called new world could be understood to be ignorant. You know, did they ever know the capital T truth at one point? Did they ever know, um, did they fall from the truth? You know, what explains their state of ignorance? There's a lot of debates around that. Um, but I think, yeah, I think that is an important difference. I really appreciated how you got into the theology. And, and I mean, it's quite a deep genealogy. You, know, you said you're not a medievalist, but I, Thomas Aquinas plays an important role in your first chapter, thinking through this question of ignorance, right? Who exactly, uh, uh, I, I mean, blame isn't quite the right word, but how we judge and how we approach uh, in a normative sense based on expectations and obviously your book goes into a lot of different consequences there under uh, some to, all the way to political economy and and, and and neoliberalism arguably and others in terms of uh, demographics and sort of reconceiving the spread of peoples all over the world i i did want to ask before we get into the the heart of the book though one more question about uh, Catholicism, actually, which is that, I mean, you brought up Limpieza de Sangre. I was just curious because early on you do cite a lot of Catholic authors while also saying side by side that Catholics were understood for the most part by the protagonists of your book to be eternally heathen. And to the point where someone converted to Catholicism from quote unquote heathen religion would still be heathen. And I read that and I think, okay, so what role could the writings of a Sepulveda or an Acosta or a different, you know, Spanish Empire era Catholic actually play for a 19th century uh, Protestant missionary looking out and feeling directly in competition with the Catholics? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, right, there's a section called Pagan Catholics. Um, I think it's in chapter one. And then there's a later section on, quote unquote, white heathens um, in, a, in a future chapter, you know, considering Catholic immigrants who are coming to the United States in the 19th century and the ways in which they were derided as, as pagans, essentially. Um, so, yeah, Catholicism, I think, plays a really interesting role in this story because, um, on the one hand, right, you, I mean, Catholics are using the same terminology, the same, um, they're generating, you know, a, a lot of this discourse around heathenism, like Acosta, for instance, um, the idea that heathenism is this kind of blanket term that can bring together uh, multiple peoples in the world, you know, under the same umbrella of, um, for Acosta, it's not, it's not just ignorance, it's that the devil is actually behind this, right? The devil is um, imitating uh Christian rights and kind of inverting them in a way that is um, that is dangerous. 
Uh, and so, so right. So, so Catholics are part of generating this discourse, but then at the same time, you know, Protestants who are in competition with Catholics are seeing them as, or making the argument that they have insufficiently separated from the pagan Roman past. Right. And so, um, I think, you know, you, you mentioned Aquinas and uh, the theologians who come up in the first chapter. This, I think this question of what to do with the Greeks and Romans is, is an important part of this story, right? And to what extent um, European Christians and then white Americans, to what extent they should draw on the classics and to what extent they should differentiate themselves from is part of this story, too. And there's um, a lot of debates in the 18th century about the teaching of the classics. You know, is it appropriate to study Plato? Is it appropriate to study Aristotle? Um, and, you know, there's there's critiques um, from Protestants, from white Protestants who say, no, these are pagans. You know, we should not study them. And their influence is clear in the Catholic Church as well. So Catholics become stained with this, you know, ongoing um, influence of paganism, essentially. But then there's other, you know, there's obviously others Protestants uh, in, in the 18th, 19th centuries who say, no, this is, you know, it's ridiculous. We should learn from the classics. No, this is important. They, they had a, they had a sense of truth. You know, they had wisdom that we can learn from. Um, but then, right, this changes in the mid 19th century with the arrival of Catholic immigrants who are basically, you know, derided as less educated, right? They're less educated. They don't, um, no, and part of their part of their lack of education, actually, according to Protestants, is that they don't know about the quote unquote heathen world. They have a kind of ignorance about the world out there that's supposed to be missionized, um, and so they themselves almost become a part of it. and And it's a way to you know, basically question their whiteness. Uh, it, it's so striking to me how class and race entangle on the uh, in the question of home heathenism that you bring up throughout the book. And this is, I think, one of the things that maybe surprised me most when I was reading the book is that, quote unquote, heathenism exists in both the international and the national imaginaries. And that, in fact, they're inseparable. So I, I mean, I, I wanted to ask, uh, there are a lot of directions we could take this, but the uh, rubric of what you described, I guess, from the Joshua Project, it's called, as the Thumbs people. Uh, I know it's a 21st century label, but how does that translate into the realm, which, I mean, you explore in great depth, of policy and economy? Uh, I know that, like I said, the label is a recent one, but the story, like you said, is one of continuities. So if you look back to the late 19th, early 20th century, the Philippines, Hawaii, uh, how how uh, how do how, how can how can you, uh, we as your I mean I've read the book but your listeners think about what is properly American or what is sort of American projected onto the world in this story? Right, right, yeah. So the the thumbs people really interesting acronym there. It's um, stands stands for tribal groups, Hindu, unreligious slash Chinese. Um, Muslim, Buddhist, and Sikh. So it's, uh, you know, this. I, I make the argument that this is one of these euphemisms for the blanket quality of heathen, which draws together people from across the world. Um, and I think, you know, at a, at a policy level or at a level of, let me break it up into, you know, policy level and then also the level of thinking about, like, what is American national identity and how is that constituted through the figure of the heathen, right? So drawing from Geraldine Hung's notion of Englishness constituted through the figure of the Jew, I argue that American identity is constituted through the figure of the heathen. Um, and even as, you know, the domestic heathen, home heathenism is an important tool that, you know, certain white Americans use to question the whiteness, Americanness of particular groups. For the most part, heathenism is understood to be something that is out there. Right, something that is beyond the borders of the nation. And I, I argue in the book that that's an effective deflection tactic, right? It's an effective way of basically um, ignoring the fact that things happen in America that happen elsewhere that, you know, we, we claim to be um, the ones who are supposed to go out there and help. And to say that it's out there that we need to help is a way of ignoring the fact that there are issues here, Right. Um, and so I think, you know, at, at a national identity level, um, the figure of the heathen helps to construct the American as the savior of the world. 
Right? So a lot of the book is really about this, you know, the generation of the, the white savior figure um, through, the fa- through the figure of the heathen. Um, as for policy, yeah, I, I, I think I, in the book, I write about this through the concept of what I call the get out of jail free card, the heathen get out of jail free card, which is, you know, basically um, the ways in which the figure of the heathen is used to justify or rationalize um, all kinds of policies, all kinds of terrible policies. Um, so the get out of jail free card is used by apologists of enslavement, right, to argue that um, enslavement is a way of Christianizing, um, quote unquote, heathens from Africa, right? Um, it's used by people justifying um, displacement of Native Americans and um, the uh, um, creation of boarding schools for the, you know, for the quote unquote, civilization of indigenous children. Um, it's used by, I mean, you mentioned Hawaii and the Philippines. It's used by annexationists uh, and imperialists to argue that these people, these quote unquote heathens cannot govern themselves, right? They cannot be trusted to govern themselves. And so um, American Christians have to go in and, um, and govern them until they can be, you know, Christianized. Um, and this is always the rationalization that, you know, Americans are going in and they're going to teach them, right? They're going to convert them eventually. But the rationalization is that this takes time. And so it's kind of ongoing racial governance has to persist in the meantime, right? And um, and it's used to justify Chinese exclusion as well, right? The exclusion of, of so-called Chinese heathens, which is, which is interesting because it's, that's a a kind of different situation, you know, where actually when the Chinese first started arriving, missionaries said, um, this is a great opportunity. You know, Chinese are coming to the United States. This is a great opportunity for us to evangelize them, you know, without having to make the arduous journey to China. Um, but then obviously, you know, economic competition, um, et cetera, you know, anti-Chinese hostility, the argument flips where now the Chinese are understood to be so heathen and changing them is understood to take so long that it's too dangerous for the United States to allow them to come, right? We have to keep the United States Christian for the sake of the rest of the world and, you know, send missionaries to China. Don't let them come here. But this idea of global religious governance, I mean, I, I think it's so striking. While you were talking, I, I had I was mindful also of a, an event, a discussion I heard between David Hollinger and Melanie McAllister not long ago, talking about uh, the United Nations and how the right to proselytize was not <laughs> granted as part of the UN Charter. And I, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, on some level, the, this aspirations of global governance are baked into it. I mean, it's exactly what you've been talking about. But the kinds of distinctions feel so contingent in some cases, right? On the one hand, send the Chinese back. On the other, make Hawaii uh, annex it and then ultimately give it statehood once uh, sufficient assimilation is achieved, whatever that means. So it strikes me, I mean, I, this is maybe just kind of a, a general question to you as, as the scholar who was bringing all this stuff together. How did you get it all to cohere? for yourself, because it strikes me that the paradoxes sometimes outweigh the the points of confluence. Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it's, it's a flexible, you know, get out of jail free card is a flexible strategy, right? And so I think that's how, um, in my writing of it, that's how I tried to explain, you know, the uses, the political uses of this concept of the heathen is that it's, it's effective because it's so flexible. I'm sorry, I just completely blanked for a second there. I was going to say something more. So you cut this little part out. (laughs) Yeah, so it's, you know, it's really the flexibility of the get out of jail free card, I think, um, allows it to work for all of these different scenarios. And I think that, you know, one way to look at that might be to say, okay, well, you know, this, this concept of the heathen, these ideas that have generated around this concept of the heathen, then it's just a rationalization, right? It's just a kind of epiphenomenal 
um, rationalization for issues that are fundamentally about taking land, taking labor, right, taking lives. And yes, absolutely, it is about that. And I don't want to give the impression at all that, you know, that this idea of saving heathens is what was of primary importance. I mean, it was a rationalization. But at the same time, to say that it was a rationalization doesn't mean that people did not also believe it. Right. So I think it's a kind of both and that's going on here that, um, you know, white Protestants justified these terrible atrocities in the name of believing that they were saving people. Or you can have both of these things happen at the same time, exist at the same time. There's definitely tensions there. And, you know, in the act of supposedly trying to save people, you know, that's that's itself facilitating you know, these terrible things, right? Yeah. So uh, this may be a good po- moment to, to bring in a, an, an idea, another idea from the book, a concept that I really liked, uh, thought was really effective, racial clumping. And in terms of conceptualizing the world and the world at home, it struck me that this is one concept which really applies as much now as it did, uh, obviously, to a lot of the historical cases you describe. I did want to ask in terms, because obviously we, we've talked about the thumbs model and how we disaggregate different different cases here, but you do say very clearly in the introduction, uh, blackness is not equivalent to race and anti-blackness is not equivalent to racism. Uh, I mean, you're an intellectual historian as well as a scholar of religion. I'm curious how you see, because you do talk a lot about African-American history in this book, you just talk about certain things and not others. There's no civil rights movement, there's no Martin Luther King Jr., but there are African-Americans struggling against slavery, and there are African-Americans who are conceptualizing what it would mean to take the gospel to Africa, for example. So how do you juggle the different uh, identities and, and the definitions of different groups. Right? I mean, I just because you brought that up in the introduction, I wanted to flag it and and and, and pursue that a little bit more. You know, to what extent is uh, blackness central to conceptualizing the relationship between race and religion in America? And to what uh, extent maybe was it one of the goals of your book to peripheralize uh, a little bit the blackness anti blackness conversation? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the goal of the book to peripheralize it, certainly not. I mean, I think that I'm I'm trying to build on broader scholarly conversations and to I guess to add, right, to add a different angle or to add something to our conversations, not not to peripheralize in any way. And so one of the one of the points that I try to make through this notion of racial clumping is that race operates in different ways, right? And so to 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 point our lens at racial clumping or to what I call kind of racial binary is not to say that racial hierarchies don't also exist. It's a racial hierarchy is super important, right? And race as read through the body is and continues to be very important. And it's not that I'm saying that these things are not, not important or, or peripheral, but to say that let's also look at this other way that race has been formed, you know, in this country. And also, I mean, really, I mean, this book is about America, the American imagination, but it's also about Europe and um, the inheritances that Americans have gotten from, you know, European um, understandings of the us versus the them. So I, I make the point in the book that racial hierarchies are, you know, if we understand race, race is really about, um, and here I'm drawing from Sylvester Johnson's book on African-American religions, um, 1500 to 2000, Colonialism, Democracy, and Freedom. He argues that race is really about colonial governance, right? It's about the division of the world into European colonizers and um, the people that they claim to have the right to govern, to colonize. Um, And so racial hierarchies work in this, you know, colonial governance through a kind of divide and conquer strategy, right? And so, you know, we think about racial hierarchies as um, setting people on supposed ladders of, um, you know, racial, um, quote unquote, development or whatever, right? And, and if we think about how that works through divide and conquer strategies, um, groups are pit against each other, right, as they try to both jockey closer to whiteness, 
Um, and here, you know, I think really anti-Blackness is critically important because particular groups who are set on these racial ladders um, are often set against African-Americans, you know, in an attempt to come closer to whiteness. So if we think about like the model minority myth, for instance, um, scholar Claire Jean Kim has written about this as racial triangulation, right? The ways in which Asian-Americans are set against African-Americans um, in an attempt to become closer to whites. This is very important, and I don't want to minimize that at all. Um, but what I what I tried to argue through this idea of racial clumping or the notion of the heathen is that race can also work through a binary. Right? So we think about race as colonial governance. It can also work through clumping, you know, all sorts of people that thumbs people together as simply not the colonizers, right? Not Europeans, not us. They're all the them. They're this kind of blanket, you know, blurred together group of people that. Um, whose differences, you know, honestly, Europeans and white Americans, Euro-Americans at times just don't care to know about right? or don't care to understand. It's just the them. It's the heathen world. It's the third world. It's the developing nations. And they share certain fundamental qualities or they're thought to share certain fundamental qualities that make them colonizable. Right. Um, and so. So, yeah. So what my book tries to do is to just call attention to the way that the racial binary works um, as a script, you know, that is sometimes in opposition to racial hierarchies as another kind of racial script, but also, you know, really they work hand in hand. They work at different times to accomplish different purposes. I mean, thank you. This is, I, I, I think that the book is incredibly successful at doing exactly what you just laid out. And I think you gave a lot away there for the listeners. So listeners, make sure, make sure that you still buy the book because uh, there's plenty more that Catherine didn't just say, but I, I want to maybe bring the, the the question of Protestantism back here for a second. And uh, here's one point where I, I mean, I'll just say from the outset, obviously, I, in my own scholarly life, work on Catholicism. So uh, I watch with admiration these conversations, but they're not conversations I intervene in. I'm curious about the extent to which uh, the, the, the distinctions among currents or denominations, because obviously there are a lot of different denominations and societies that sometimes cross denominational lines or maybe even obviate denominational differences. Uh, but the point that you were just making about the clumping and the binaries, it seems to transcend those differences. And I'm just curious about the extent to which uh, scholars who pick up your book and, and want to keep going with the subject matter, what your advice would be in terms of how to generalize or not. Uh, I brought up Hollinger and McAllister before. The the mainline ecumenical evangelical distinctions are really important uh, for them. I got the sense that I mean, they exist in your book, but they're not the same because you're not writing about the same thing. So you know, future scholars of American religion, how would you advise them to, to aggregate or disaggregate inside the Protestant fold? Yeah, yeah, this is, I mean, this book is a synthesis, right? So it's, um, it covers like centuries and it's too long, but, <laughs> but it's also not long enough for how much it tries to cover. I was going to say, so it's not is... too long. No, 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 no. It's a wonderful <laughs> read. And it's, that, I mean, I've read plenty of 700 page books. Yours is exactly the right length. <laughs> yeah, it's not 700 pages. That is true. Um, but there's, right, there's not as much disaggregation as could occur in a 700 page book. So I would be delighted if scholars you know, took particular groups, particular denominations, um, and wanted to pursue the same lines of inquiry and to, to look at them, um, you know, in a, in a more specific kind of finer grained way. I mean, I think that would be wonderful. I think there's just for a book like this, I couldn't do as much of that. But also, you know, I think the argument that I'm trying to make as you as you note is different from the kinds of arguments that a Hollinger or McAllister um, might make about, you know, the mainline um, versus, say, fundamentalists, you know, so I, I have this chapter on, um, I think it's my chapter on resonances that includes both you know, fundamentalists and the mainline. And there are, you know, just as, as we were talking about history has changed over time and continuity, I think we see that here too, where you do see change over time, certainly in the ways that particularly the mainline is approaching missions. Um, they don't use the term heathen anymore. You know, by the early 20th century, like that term is gone. They are 
much more open to, um, you know, they're, I mean, they're, they're more interested in missions for the sake of helping suffering bodies, right? So it's really like ameliorating the suffering of people in the world and not so much about changing their hearts. Um, whereas fundamentalists, you know, conservative missionaries, they're using the term heathen well into the 20th century, like late 20th century. Um, and for them, you know, changing hearts continues to be critically important. And the way that they understand that is similar to the way that 19th century missionaries understood that, which is that changing hearts is supposed to change landscapes, is supposed to change the ways that bodies are um, on those lands, right? So that there is an important difference there. But on the other hand, I think that, you know, we also need to be attentive to these continuities that, um, you know, the mainline might not be using the term heathen anymore, but in secular discourse, like not even talking about churches, you know, we continue to use terms like third world, developing world. Um, you know, there's there continues to be these outreach programs towards people in, you know, pick a place in the world, in the third world that, you know, let's build houses, build wells, et cetera. Um, and I mean, it's complicated, right? Like in the, in the epilogue to the book, I say, I'm not, you know, as an academic who's writing about this, I'm not morally superior at all, you know, by any means to people who are volunteering, building wells, bringing vaccines, et cetera. Um, but I think it is important to think about why, right? And, you know, where, you know, what's the history behind this kind of impulse? Is this impulse, you know, like to what extent is this impulse meant to reinforce a sense of American identity as, again, as the helpers rather than those who need help? I mean, it's a very powerful point, and I, I think the book ends very effectively, exactly as you just uh, you, you just illustrated. Uh, I, I one one thing that I was curious about, and this again, you know, you see the sort of comparativist thinking on my part. Uh, I've written a little bit about religion in French overseas mission uh, in for the British and the French. Obviously, these are these are big topics covered by historians and scholars of religion, and it strikes me that just um, I mean, again, acknowledging the very important caveat you just made you know, for, for positionality. We're scholars, we're not superior, uh, but it's important to understand why. Looking back at 19th century Britain and France, religious figures were very useful even when secular discourses dominated. So unlike in the U.S., right, let's say you take France, the civilizing mission, well, kick the priests and the nuns out of public life at home and send them all to Madagascar and to French Polynesia and let them do the civilizing. Uh, and I'm struck uh, I, I'm just curious. I know that I'm, I'm asking you to speculate a little bit here, but how American is the behavior? You, you just ended your last point on saying that this is in some sense what made uh, American behavior cohere. And I've seen this behavior in a lot of other places. Uh, and obviously, we can quibble about timelines and agency, and those are important things. But I'm curious you know, I, I I could also bring up Woodrow Wilson here, right? We sort of filter out the American side and say liberal internationalism. And there's a lot of it is exactly what you're describing in the book because the religious overtones were assumed in the origins of liberal internationalism. So if I can just kind of uh, encourage you to uh, talk for a second globally and comparatively, how, how far do you think this story goes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. It's just because this is constitutive, I think, of a kind of American identity as helpers of the world doesn't mean that it is exclusive to America. Right? I think that, um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of this is inherited from a European context. And I think that this continues to be the case in a European context. Um, and, you know, drawing on Sylvester Johnson's definition of race, again, it's about you know, the division of the world into the European versus the non-European, the European colonizer versus the non-European colonized. So I don't think it's just America, even though it has become really um, important to a sense of American Christian nationhood. You know, we can talk about white Christian nationalism and the ways that I, I see this in the discourse today. 
Um, but I think, you know, I, again, I don't think that that means it's exclusive to America. I'm not a European historian, so I don't want to make claims about um, about Europe and the extent to which this kind of discourse is, you know, constitutive of certain European identities. But, um, you know, like it, we could talk about the war in Ukraine, too, and the coverage of the war in Ukraine. And similarly, how, you know, in the media coverage of it, um, especially early on, you know, this kind of language around how could this be happening in Europe? You know, this is this kind of violence is what we're accustomed to seeing in um, the third world and developing nations. You know, how could it be happening here? I mean, some people explicitly were quoted as saying, like, it's so striking or jarring to see people with blonde hair and blue eyes, you know, partaking in this kind of behavior. Right. I mean, that is that comes out of this discourse. So, no, it's not it's not just American. Um, but, yeah, again, like I, I don't want to make bigger claims than I'm able to do. So hearing the point that you just made about the coverage of the war in Ukraine, I'm really struck by the fact that, after all, a lot of Europeans, and I'm thinking here of Muslims in the Balkans, of course, population that goes back centuries in terms of its history, uh, not not just post-colonial Muslim populations in Western Europe, but the very people you were, re- were referencing, the blue-eyed, blonde-haired in Ukraine, are the wrong kind or the heathen kind uh, of of Christians. So if I can maybe just ask you to keep going with the line of thought that you were following a minute ago, uh, would the uh, thinking about heathens prevent Americans from understanding or distinguishing or would it still be possible to say like you said a minute ago well they're in europe uh would would muslims in albania be in europe or would they fall more into the groupings of africa and the middle east or malaysia right right i mean there's you know muslims in america too clearly right i mean yeah i mean right so one of the main points that i try to make in the book is that this lens of the heathen world prevents Americans from seeing the diversity and complexity of the world, right? Um, You know, I I think that's a really good question with regard to Europe. I think I should clarify that, you know, for Americans looking at and identifying with Europe, for white Americans, it's primarily England, right? It's an Anglo-American kind of discourse, an Anglo-American exceptionalism that's developing here. Um, and Anglo-American Protestant exceptionalism to be even clearer, right? So I think that, you know, white Protestant Anglo-Americans in the 19th century, in the 20th century, they do recognize differences in Europe. Um, You know, we brought up Catholicism earlier. Um, And and they do understand that there is some diversity in Europe. But again, you know, it depends on what lens they're looking at and, and and how they are conceiving of their place in the world. And so at some times they're, they're identifying with this kind of larger undifferentiated Europe. Um, and at other times it is with primarily with Protestant England. Um, but even then, you know, thinking historically too, um, white Protestant Americans recognize that Europe was not always Christian. And this is like another thing that comes up in the sources um, repeatedly, they're recognizing that their own ancestors used to be worshippers. And they say they, they were worshippers of Thor and Odin and, you know, the Angles and the Saxons um, used to be heathens. But then they they read that into their narrative of historical progress, right? So they read that into this narrative that we used to be heathens, but we accepted Christianity. We were Christianized sooner than the rest of the heathen world. And look what that Christianization has done. It has jumpstarted us into you know, the progressive path of history. And so that has turned us into the ones to do that for the rest of the world. Yeah, so we're back to history. And I think this is actually a wonderful place to to ask maybe a few nuts and bolts curiosity questions, which I think uh, will be of a special interest to our, our listeners. I love the visuals in the book. I think they really help to hammer home a range of the points you make. Uh, I think they're really well chosen. I'm curious if you planned while you were doing your research to have a lot of images and you were actively seeking everything out you could possibly find? Or if these things sort of came, like you mentioned, the the Howells textbook before that a grad student brought to you. Uh, Tell us a little bit about about the illustrations and where they come from. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely actively, you know, 
taking pictures um, at archives and thinking, oh, this would be great for this section. Um, and I was fortunate that one of the readers for the press said, this book needs to include a lot of images. <laughs> so um, it didn't take a lot of convincing there to tell the press, I need this. Um, I think they gave me a limit of 30, which was already too few for <laughs> all the images that I had. Um, and and I didn't, I wasn't able to have images in color, which I really would have loved to have, particularly for um, some of these maps of the world that I that I write about in the book, but wasn't able to reproduce. Um, you know, maps of the world that color coded according to religion in the 19th century, and then maps from uh, our contemporary day that you know some of which continue to color code the world by religion, um, but then also, you know, maps of the quote unquote developing world and third world that looks so similar to those maps from the 19th century. I would have loved to include those. But um, yeah, I was, I was always kind of attuned to, you know, what, what might I be able to include in this? And then of course, you know, permissions are a beast. <laughs> so that, uh, that helped to winnow it down somewhat, you know, both permissions and also the reproducibility uh, in black and white of, of certain images helped me get it down to the 30 that appear in the book. And I was glad that the press actually didn't have much input into the, the cover at all. Um, but the press took one of the, I, I think, really important images of the book and, and put that on the cover. And I thought, well, that's, that's great because now it's larger that, you know, you can really see the detail here that I'm trying to describe in the book. Um, that's an image that comes from a missionary certificate from the early 19th century. Well, so, so the speaking more generally about about the sources, it strikes me that for a book of this scope and this breadth, it, it must have been really a complex process. And I'm understating it, I'm sure, by by many orders here uh, to try to figure out your research trajectory. And uh, I'm just curious: Did you end up traveling to some of the places? that you discussed in terms of what the missionaries were imagining and uh, how they understood. I mean, Hawaii is maybe the easiest. Mm -hmm. It's not that long of a flight, but I'm, I'm just, I, you, you discuss so many different parts of the world. Uh, how, how does the, your own sort of imaginary as a researcher map onto the kind of uh, source trajectory you picked? Yeah. Yeah. This was a difficult book to research um, also because uh, you know it was it's my second book and so it's the book that I wrote um, on the tenure track um, with small children and with the pandemic you know happening um, or starting at some point in the process and so I did you know I traveled to a number of archives I spent um, I spent some time in Hawaii. Uh, I wish that I'd been able to travel to more of the places that I write about in the book, but unfortunately with children in the pandemic, that was not possible. But um, I, you know, in some of those, those middle chapters in particular on how um, American Protestants were imagining the so-called heathen world. Um, what I did there. So I spent a, I spent some time at the library company of um, Philadelphia and, and what I did there was just to just try to read, you know, thinking of that library as itself a constructed archive of the kinds of things that Americans were reading and preserving. What were they reading and preserving about the so-called heathen world? And there's voluminous, you know, there's so many sources. <laughs> that problem wasn't finding sources. It was how to, how to get a grasp, you know, how to, how to get a handle on all of the sources that are out there that have been preserved. Um, and then that's not even to talk about digital sources, which is you know, another um, important part of this. And I was fortunate enough to have an undergraduate research assistant one summer actually, who had taken a course, this is very Stanford on, um, I think it's called literary data mining. Uh, it sounds really amazing. I, I wanna take a course like this, um, but I think it was offered by the CS department and it was basically you know how to go through these databases and how to, um, do large scale, you know, keyword searches across entire print runs of journals and print newspapers and magazines and, um, and generate, you know, data from that. And so my, my undergraduate research assistant was able to do that. And, you know, that was, that was really incredible. Um, well, I definitely want to take that class as well. I mean, it sounds like that you made really good use of the research assistant there. Uh, I, I, I just, you know, we only have a couple minutes left, but I, 
if you'll permit me, want to switch gears back to the 21st century and to resonances. Uh, you brought up the pandemic just now, and I, reading the beginning of your book and the end of your book, it's clear that this is a book that is in part a product of the pandemic, even though obviously you've been thinking about it for a long time, but also the reactions to the pandemic uh, that we saw across the U.S. that we still see. Obviously, the midterm elections are next week. It's hard not to think, and, and you're quite you're quite clear about that actually in the epilogue to the book about the resonances of the heathen concept in 21st century, or i.e., 2020, 2022 uh, American politics. Uh, without maybe getting too political, I do want to ask what do we need to watch out for? What should we, we be worried about? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so in the epilogue, I write about how the pandemic um, exposed this kind of, the failures of this kind of deflection that I that would, I talked about earlier, right? The idea that, oh, this stuff happens over there, right? It happens not in our country. The pandemic made it crystal clear that, wait, actually, <laughs> the United States was, I mean, people were explicitly um, using the language of first world, third world, which again, I argue emerges from this idea of the heathen world. They're explicitly using that language to say things like, how could this be happening? This is the kind of thing that should be happening in a third world country. Right here, we have doctors who are wearing trash bags, you know, nurses who are wearing bandanas because we don't have PPE. Um, but then at the same time, you know, we there were people who used that kind of language to push back and say, the United States has always been a third world country, right? Maybe for some people, you're only now realizing this. And this is also similar to the ways that the concept of the heathen has been used. We didn't talk so much today about um, people labeled by that term who pushed back against it or adopted it. You know, that this has been a constant refrain that actually the U.S. is doing exactly the things that it's criticizing the so-called heathen world of doing, the so-called third world of doing. Um, so, yeah, I guess, you know, being attentive to these continued kinds of deflections, um, this continued uh, you know, kind of binary view of the world and the ways that it's used to shore up this myth of what America is. You know, I mentioned white Christian nationalism earlier. I think that is hugely important to think about with, you know, the upcoming elections with the current state. I know you said not to get too political, but to think no, about no, you know, the feel current free. It's, it's, of- it's your, your show. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's hugely important to think of that given the current state of things and the kinds of books that are being published by white Christian nationalists that are hitting bestseller lists you know, like there's, um, I'm not going to remember the exact titles of these. There's there's one that's called, I think, The Case for Christian Nationalism. Um, and there's one that uh, has a similar title, but the subtitle of it is something like, you know, discipling and taking dominion over the nations. I mean, this, this idea of discipling and taking dominion over the nations, that is rooted in this notion that the quote unquote heathen world is the inheritance of a Christian nation to take. Right. And so this kind of language is still with us. Um, It is still politically significant. And we need to wrestle with that. Right. We need to be aware of that. We need to understand where that's coming from. And when white Christian nationalists say things, which they do, they explicitly say this is not about race. Right. This is not about race. This is about religion. What I try to show in the book is that race is about religion and religion is about race. Right. And so. Yeah, I think we need to be attentive to how words are used, the flexibility of how words are used. You know, as we were talking um, earlier, the continued uses of the get out of jail free card. Um, yeah, this is the story is still with us, right? Continuity and change over time. Well, this is a very powerful point on which to end, I think. And I hope that that folks First of all, you know, we'll think about what you've said, and but second, we'll we'll read and we'll think very carefully about that entanglement of race and religion uh, in the in the world around us, uh, and and in the U.S. specifically. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for this incredibly rich conversation. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank and- you. Thank you so much. 
Yeah, no, no, of course. I, it's, I, 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 I look forward to discussing your next book with you uh, when, whenever we get there. <laughs> I, I also want to thank our listeners. Uh, just want to remind you all that uh, our guest today is Professor Catherine Jin Lum from Stanford University, and we've been talking about her incredible uh, book released in May of this year, 2022, with Harvard University Press, entitled Heathen, Religion and Race in American History, which I commend to everyone. Uh, wishing you all a good afternoon, and thank you again for uh, talking with us, Catherine. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your um, really thought-provoking questions and also the perspective that you bring. It was really great to talk about it with you. Thanks again.